Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's 10 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, it's that time of the year. It's the end of the year. Everybody's a little bit tired. Everybody's a little bit stressed out. And uh, you can almost start to feel that scratchy feeling of sand between your toes as your mind starts to drift towards the beach because that's really where you want to be. But there's a lot to get done. There's a lot to cram in in the last six weeks, eight weeks, depending on when you're going away or when you're closing down or when you're just going to take a bit of a break. But there are certain things that need to be done before you go away. And what I'd really like to do is spend the next month, the next four shows, just going through the important tidbits on the financial side that need to be done before you go away. And those are the things that are often really, really important, don't need to be done on a regular basis, but need to be done from time to time, need to be checked from time to time, need to be updated. And once they're done, they just give you this tremendous sense of serenity because you don't no longer need to worry about them. And for all the time that you haven't done them, you definitely have this proverbial monkey on your back because you feel like, mm, I haven't got this done. And um, I had a particular case this week where a client called me. He was going overseas to a conference, needed to get his will done. He did it and he needed <coughs> witnesses. And that became a whole story. And if he had just done it Prior to that, he wouldn't be panicking, running around looking for witnesses on the day that he was leaving. So if you have any world-related questions, any um, questions related to the administration of deceased estates, or basically accounting or general taxation questions, we have Richard Kinross in studio, who is an expert in this area. Richard's been around for many, many years. But Richard, welcome to Chai FM. Uh, Avi, thank you very much for inviting me to be your guest. Uh, you, you, you outlined that very well. Uh, I, I would just like to add, I would like to endorse what you said. It's not necessary to look at a will every day, but a will is a very important document that the uh, testator should look at from time to time. Uh, when circumstances change, his children can get married, uh, grandchildren can be born, loved ones close to him or her can pass away, uh, tax laws can change, estate duty regulations can change, and it's necessary from time to time to review a will. It's also very important for those people who have wills to share with those close to them, their accountant, their lawyer, their spouse, their children, where these wills are stored. Very often we come across people who we know have wills, but nobody knows where to find them. And when the time comes and they pass away and we are unable to find the will, it is as if they have uh, passed away without having left a will, and in that event, perhaps we'll get to it a little bit later, in that event, the laws of intestate succession will apply. Richard, let's maybe go back to the very, very beginning. When people think about drafting a will, it's almost as if you've put them at base camp in Mount Everest and told them to climb the mountain. But that's not really the case. If you sit down with the correct person who can guide you, it's actually quite a straightforward process. Uh, yes, it is a straightforward process. For many people, though, it's a, it's, a, it's an emotional uh, 
shock to them that they even have to consider a will, but it really is an important thing to have, as I've just said a short while ago, and I think when one is ready to prepare a will or to amend a will, the first person or persons they should sit with is their spouse, uh, their financial advisor, their lawyer, their accountant, these could be four or five different people, or if they have a particular relationship with one, uh, then initially with one. But all of these people that I've mentioned, I think, are are key to be party to 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 drawing a will that is drawn with thought and considers every family member and every tax aspect, and none of those people should actually be left without. Uh, left, uh, none of those people should be precluded from being in a meeting with the testator at some stage or another, not, necessar- not necessarily all at the same time. Fair enough. So it's really about getting all your ducks in a row. Richard, can we just spend a few minutes just outlining some of the important people that are involved in a will? Because what happens is that the legalese get thrown around. People hear terminologies. They tend to nod like they know what that's what's going on. And internally they're thinking, I haven't a clue what this guy's saying. And am I getting myself into a bit of a corner here? Because eventually I'm going to have to admit that I don't understand the difference between a testator, a testator, executor, a trustee. L- let's maybe go through these things. A person drafts a will. With the intention that should something, should they pass away, someone then has to administer that will. Who is that person? Okay, I need correct you. It's not should. The one certainty in life is that a person will pass away, so it is when they pass away. When a testator or the female, a testatrix passes away, and presumably they have a will, Usually the will in the first or second paragraph will talk about the uh, executor or the female version, the executrix, and the executor is the person who takes over the assets, puts him or herself in the shoes of the testator, and they look after the uh, assets of the um, of the testator. The the nominated executor is normally an accountant of the testator or a brother or a sister or a child or a spouse or children. Uh, Very often there's more than one executor, but the the executor is the first port of call in a deceased estate. That's having a look in the will, uh, and, and, and then the estate needs to be registered, but we will come on to that a little bit later. But let's spend a little bit of time there. Um, we've heard the horror stories where a person makes the testator a brother, a friend, who has absolutely no experience in this field at all. They might be a lawyer, but they don't deal with this. They might be an accountant who hasn't practiced for many years and not a fay with the story. What happens when you want to have, <coughs> excuse me, somebody that you that you trust and that you're very fond of, is there a way of having that person together with an expert as a testator? Usually the uh, executor does not know how to wind up a deceased estate unless that, dece- unless that executor happens to be a lawyer who is familiar with this, with the process, or an accountant who's familiar with the process. But usually 
the test, uh, the uh, executor being a close relation of the testator doesn't have a clue. And what they would do is they would appoint an agent. An agent is a person like me. Uh, there are several others, but a person who's experienced in the day-to-day winding up of the affairs of the deceased, registering the estate with the master and following all the processes from the beginning to the end, they need to uh, engage such a person. Would the fee change or would the fee stay the same? The fee stays the same. There is a... Um, Fee laid down in the uh, in the in the act, a maximum fee of three and a half percent based on the assets, six percent on the income. The master is entitled to reduce the fee if and when he thinks it's necessary. If he thinks the fee is too high, but if there is one executor, very often there's two executors, and sometimes there are even three, but they all. Together with an agent, they all share in the three and a half percent executor's remuneration. Okay, so it's one amount that needs to be divvied up amongst all these different yes. people. So to summarize, it is important to have an expert as an executor, or that there's an understanding that the executor will then solicit the services of an expert in order to make sure that the world is the world is. Processed in the timeliest fashion. That's correct. Right. Richard, if you don't mind, let's take a quick break. We need to generate some revenue for the station. We'll be back with you in a moment. Avi on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9. Hi, FM. Welcome back to 101.9. Hi, FM. It's 20 minutes past 12. In studio with me is Richard Kinross, who is an expert in estates and winding up of estates and dra- drafting of wills. Uh, Richard, maybe before we go to the next question, you did ask me what I want to ask next, but a bit of a start. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a chartered accountant. You've been an accountant for many years, but we, we, you know, what's your experience, but not your experience, but what's your history in the business and the accounting world? I, um, Started in the accounting profession uh, as a clerk straight after, well, this is my second year after school. I finished my exams and passed the board exam in uh, 1964. For a few years after that, I was in various family uh, businesses. And from about 1978 until 2009, I was a partner in a uh, old established firm of accountants and auditors in Johannesburg. The name of the firm? Um, Well, there were several names because over the years there were mergers and acquisitions, but at the end of my career, the name of my firm was Tuffia Sandberg. Um, Both of those firms, it was Tuffia Shapiro at one time, and Levenstein Sandberg was the other firm. Both of these firms date back to the 1930s, we merged in 1997, and the firm, there might have been other mergers along the way, but uh, but we merged in 1997, uh, Tuffia Shapiro and uh, Sandbergs to form Tuffia Sandberg, which firm still exists today. Oh, fantastic. And then you decided at a certain age that you've you've had enough of accounting. Why were you attracted to doing this type of work? Well, uh, it wasn't that I felt that I'd had enough of accounting. We had a retirement age in our firm of 65. 
When I reached 65, I wasn't ready to retire. I was allowed to remain on till uh, 68, another three years, which I did. Uh, when I reached 68, I still wasn't ready to retire, but it was necessary for me to leave the firm. And I decided that what I was going to do was concentrate on wills, trusts, and deceased estates. How did I arrive at this decision was that towards the end of my tenure as a, as a partner at Tafia Sandberg, I was ha- handed the mandate of looking after the deceased estates department in our firm, and I started doing that about two or three years before I left, so that was round about uh, 2006. I started at Tafia Sandberg. It, it was in the same office, but in the different department doing the deceased estates. And I just carried on after I left. So it was great. So you got a grounding there in an active firm, and then you sort of carried it on going forward. Okay, let's get back to Wills. Um, we've, just, we, we've, just, we've discussed the executor. The next thing is the trustees. Where do they come into play? Not all wills require trustees. Um, a will can provide for a testamentary trust to be created. A testamentary trust is a trust that's created in terms of the will as opposed to an inter vivos trust, which is created during a person's lifetime. And only in the event that a testator uh, provides for a testamentary trust to be created in his will is it necessary to nominate trustees. Trustees, the executor or the executors and the administrators, those are the people that administer the estate, are usually the same people. They don't have to be, but they usually are. Okay, and that would really be the to administer the money that's left in a trust that is created by the will when the person passes away so that there's management systems in place. Well, if you're talking now about a testamentary uh, uh, will in a in a uh, in a deceased estate, all the terms and conditions are laid down in the will. The, the will then becomes a will can be a short document, even a page, a page and a half. But usually, when there are substantial assets and a trust is created, the will can run on for eighteen or nineteen pages. All necessary clauses because they deal with how the trust should be administered in terms of the testator's wishes. And the trustees need to be familiar with all these clauses because they uh, look after the trust and run the trust in terms of the testator's wishes. Right. And then the last group of people, the guardians, who are they? Guardians is also not something you often see in wills, or certainly not that I often see in wills. This is a situation where a testator dies and he has uh, minor children. Where there are minor children, you create, uh, you appoint guardians who will look after the children from the point of view of their schooling, decide which school they should go to, their extramural activities, uh, etc., and they try and take the place if I can use such a word, such a broad expression, uh, the t- try and take the place of the parents in looking after the minor children. So we've got, you know, all these different responsibilities. They can be the same or they can be different people. Yes. The last thing I want to ask you, which is a question that's just come through, on signing as witnesses on the will, 
can somebody who is involved in the will, in other words, either an executor, a trustee, or a guardian, sign as a witness on the will? Well, certainly beneficiaries can't sign, um, and it is advisable and preferable for no party who has an interest in the will to sign as a uh, as an, as a witness. You should always rather have two independent witnesses. Okay, fantastic. That sums up very and, nicely. And, and, and when you get these two independent mm-hmm. witnesses, I always recommend that we get their IDs so we know who they are because very often you can't read a signature and I ask for their uh, signature to be endorsed on their ID so that we can compare it to the will if and when required. Ah, oh, fantastic. Actually, a very, very good idea. Great. Now, let, let's move on quickly and let's take a, a bit of an aside. Let's talk about trusts for, for a moment because there was a time where inter vivos trusts were, were very, very popular. You know, people of means had more than one. Be, then they, they, it ran into a bit of an accounting issue and a management issue. And many, many people that I speak to have got lots of dormant trusts, trusts that aren't active. Let's go back to the very beginning. An interviewer's trust is a trust that's created while somebody is alive. What would be the purpose of doing such a event? Th- there was more than one purpose. One of the purposes would be to protect assets to protect assets from uh, creditors. But I think a more important issue was uh, to delay the estate duty. The the growth assets of the testator would be put into a trust, and the trust lives on after the testator had died. So it was not necessary to have expensive growth assets in the testator's estate. It delayed the uh, the payment of the estate duty, and it gave continuity for the beneficiaries of the estate. Trusts are still widely used, but they're not very popular with uh, with with certain with SARS, for instance, and hence the taxation on trusts is more expensive than other uh, entities and individuals. So its purpose is really asset protection and continuation. Yes. And, um, you know, from what I understand is that it's important that once your trust is set up, it's run as a separate entity from yourself, so you're not using the trust bank account to do your pick-and-pay shopping, and that the books of the trust are actually submitted to SARS on on an annual basis. Well, it's actually even more regulated than that. Um, you should have several, at least several trustees, one of whom could be the, uh, the founder. The other could be uh, a spouse. But there should also be independent trustees. It also depends to a certain degree on the, on the value of the assets in the trust. But if you have a substantial trust, you should have proper trustees who understand and they're not merely figureheads who'll, who'll, who'll sign off documents and are really just carrying out the will of the, uh, of the founder, uh, or of the beneficiaries. They are separate important people and they are controlled by act. And they're responsible to the master, they're responsible to the beneficiaries, and they should be people who know what they are doing and not just be an appointee. Well, I think that's an important point. And also maybe they should be aware that they have been appointed as trustees so that they know what's going on. 
they actually sign an undertaking. There's a form that's got to be completed and submitted to the master whereby they confirm that they know what they're doing and they give their business experience and where they have been and how old they are, etc. And if the master should decide that such a trustee is not worthy or qualified to be a trustee, the master won't allow for that appointment to be made. Fantastic. And that leads us on to the next topic, which is the actual deceased estates. But before we get there, on a slightly note, a happier and maybe more merry note, Whiskey Live is coming to South Africa. So just to let you know that Whiskey and Spirits Live, supported by Gauteng Tourism, is on at the Sandon Convention Center from the 31st of October till the 2nd of November 2018. There are almost 300 of the world's finest whiskies and are brought together under one roof. It's time for the world's last, largest whisky festival. Whether you're a newcomer or enthusiast, discover the premium spirits that include whisky, gin, rum, tequila, vodka and more. Meet the experts and find many ways to enjoy your favorite drink. Don't miss the Whiskey and Spirits Live from the 31st of October to the 2nd of November at the Santon Convention Center. Where do you get your tickets? Well, get them before you start drinking, otherwise you won't find the tickets. That's at ticketpros.co.za, and that is just to make sure that you are over 18 and no under-18s will be allowed. Um, I know many people who go every year, they Uber there, they Uber back, and they have an absolute blast. So uh, off you go and uh, go register there for, for Whiskey Life. Um, Richard, the inevitable happens, as you said at the beginning of the show, and someone passes away. And let's take the scenario where everything's in order. The will's in place. There's a file in the home. Everybody knows where that file is. In the file is a copy of the will or, for example, your details. Should I pass away, please get hold of Richard Kinross and he will help you, etc., etc. What happens from that point right away? person passes away now at, at 12.30 today, the 30th of October. What's the next step? Let us leave out the uh, the raw emotion of the of the mourners, uh, because that can sometimes take a couple of days to subside, um, and only then do the steps begin to register the estate with the master. But let's assume we are already beyond that stage, and the surviving spouse. If there is one in this particular instance or the mourners or the family, they're ready now to move on the winding up of the estate. What happens is that they will be presented with a, uh, a death certificate, uh, a death notice, first of all, from the um, hospital or the doctor who examined the deceased. They will also get from the Department of Home Affairs a, uh, a death certificate. And with these documents, they are now ready to commence the uh, registration of the estate. They need these two documents that I've just mentioned. They also need the original will. The master will not accept uh, a copy of a will. Even if it's a certified copy, we need to find the original will. We need then to... Take the assets of the uh, of the deceased as best as we know them. Here we call upon the accountant or lawyer or spouse or children to help us, and we list the assets in various categories 
um, on a form which is called an inventory. The various categories are movable assets and non-movable assets, and you list them as best as you can without uh, proper market valuations, but with reasonable estimates of the market valuation. We then have to take other forms and submit to the master, uh, such as the ID document of the deceased, the ID document of the executor, the ID document of the executor's agent. And although not all masters who register the estate require, most people in South Africa now are in the habit of providing proof of residential address, so we provide proof of residential address. We also need to have an affidavit signed by the surviving spouse, if there is one, that the deceased, what his or her marital status was. We also need to have an affidavit signed by the person, the nominated executor, who's applying for the appointment of executor, to inform the master that, to the best of their knowledge, no previous application has been made for appointment of letters of executorship. I must just interrupt myself here, um, Avi. When a deceased estate is registered, you get what's called a letters of executorship. I don't know why it's letters plural, it's just one page, but it's called letters of executorship. These documents are then taken to the master and the master checks them all and in due course will issue the letters of executorship. And once the letters of executorship are in the hands of the executor, then the next process can take place. Okay. And that process is? The process that takes place is to uh, open a bank account. Um, usually... If the executor is not in a position to wind up the estate him or herself and appoints an agent, the agent would prepare a power of attorney for the um, executor to sign in favor of the agent, and the agent would then, with all of the documents that I've listed, that I've, that I've mentioned a few moments ago, take further copies of those documents to the bank and open an estate bank account. Once the estate bank account is open, you then need to go to the bank where the uh, deceased conducted his or her bank account. Maybe it's at the same bank, maybe it's a different bank. And again, with those self-same documents or further copies of those documents, you need to close the uh, uh, bank account that the testator used during his or her lifetime. It takes a few weeks to close the account because it goes from the branch to their deceased estates department. And once closed, it will get into the bank account of the uh, estate. You also need to advertise the estate calling for debtors and creditors in both the government gazette and in a newspaper circulating in the area in which the deceased resided. So if it's Johannesburg, you've got the choice of the star, the citizen, uh, business day, and also the government gazette. The two ads need to appear, well, it's the one ad in the two publications need to appear on the same day. Government gazette usually only comes out on a Friday, so the ads appear on a Friday. 
Okay. And that's quite a, 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 you know, a, a, a laborious process if you're not a fay with the pro, with the way it works. But someone like yourself who does this every day sort of would get into the rut and just get things done. And the family then would provide you with the information that you needed to go forward. Yes. Uh, right. The, the, the thing that, that comes to mind and, and that people are often asking is my spouse passes away. We actually had one joint bank account. Everything was in his name. I just had signing power. He now passes away. What happens to all that money in his account or accounts? So if the account is in the name of the deceased, the account should be frozen, and uh, that could create problems for the for the surviving spouse who now may find that he or she doesn't have finances to uh, to carry on with day-to-day living so it's recommended that each spouse should have their own account to avoid possibilities like this taking place okay because that's something that you often hear about is the worry that the spouse passes away all the money is frozen so just to make sure that in your day-to-day living there's actually a split in the cash holdings so that should something happen, there is liquidity. Um, Richard, we need to take a quick break. When I come back, what I'd like to ask you about is with an estate being wound up and there being minor children, how do we ensure that they continue to get some sort of cash flow even though both their parents have passed away? Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Avi on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9. Hi, FM. Welcome back to 101.9. Hi, FM. It is right. Richard, to, to bring this whole thing to, to a close, people are sitting in their cars and their offices or wherever they might be now and they've listened to us talk and they're thinking, shucks, I've done absolutely nothing. And Interviva's trust, I don't need. So I don't need to worry about that. But I'm a family man. Most of the money is in my bank account because that's where my commissions or salaries or, or income gets paid into. Um, my wife really has access to their account. We're going away in December. I just want to make sure that I don't tempt fate, that everything is nice and neat. Could you give us a few pointers as to what they should do within the next month just to make sure that, God forbid, the worst should happen Everything should run smoothly from there. So if they don't have a will and they now want to prepare a will either for the first time or to amend their will, what they should do is start off by making a list of their assets so at least as a start they know what they have. It is advisable to work with a financial planner because the schedule of assets that they prepare might produce income of X rand a year or might produce income of a 100 X rand a year and a financial planner is the person who can help them invest in the right place to be sure that there is money for their loved ones when the fateful day arrives. Uh, and Earlier on in this discussion, we said that they should do this together with a lawyer and or an accountant and definitely with a financial advisor and or all of these people. There are certain pointers that I want to make in uh, that I want to suggest in making a will. And those are that these days many South Africans have got money out of South Africa. And if their will 
starts off in the first paragraph or in the last paragraph and says that this is a will only of their South African assets, it means, therefore, that it does not include their assets that are out of South Africa. If assets outside of South Africa are not included in the South African will, then, unless they have a will in the country in which these assets are situated, they will be deemed to have passed away uh, intestate in that particular country. When one passes away intestate, the assets are divided up in terms of the laws of intestate succession of that particular country, and the testator could find that the assets that he has earmarked all his or her life for a child or a grandchild don't land up with that grandchild. So it is advisable to have uh, not to die in testate and to have a will. I recommend that unless there's a good reason not to do this, all wills should be in terms of your worldwide assets. Uh, it's also of interest to know that if people have made a will overseas, they were living overseas for a while and now they're back in South Africa and they don't have a will in South Africa, but they only have the will from overseas, that will can be valid in South Africa. It just depends on if it is valid in terms of the laws of the particular country in which it is uh, made, and if it is valid in terms of the laws of that country, it will also be valid here in South Africa, provided it comes with the necessary authorities from people in whichever country it is, certifying that the will is correct, and in terms of the laws of that country. Right. So the, the, the questions that are coming through thick and fast are: Where do I go to get a will done? So let me ask you before we answer that question broadly. What are your details? How do people get hold of you? Well, my details, I'll repeat my name. My name is Richard Kinross. My email address is richard at Kinross Group. That's one word. That's with two S's. Uh, yes. K-I-N-R-O-S-S. Richard at KinrossGroup.coza. My cell number, which is the best place to get me, is 83 Two double six zero three nine one. To try and get hold of me is much better than using a website because I don't have a website and I will answer personally any question that's put to me, maybe not the same day, but certainly the next day. If any questions are put to me, I would prefer if they can be in email. Okay, so that's how people... Now, let's say someone says, look, I want to go to my bank or I've got a template or something. What are the basic rules that they should abide by? Every bank, or certainly the big four banks, will draw a will. Uh, usually they do that free. Usually they appoint themselves or a member of their staff as executors. And it's not really a custom will it's a, it's it's an off the shelf will which doesn't mean that it's not a valid will but it's not designed and created specifically for the test data you can buy a will at some of the stationery shops which i imagine is very similar uh, to the to a will from the from the bank 
And again, that's a valid will, but it may not cater exactly for your needs. And my recommendation is that you should rather go to a, a person like me. There are several people like me doing what I do. Uh, all lawyers draw wills, certainly most. A lot of accountants do wills, financial planners do wills, trust companies do wills, and it's not a difficult thing to try and find somebody to do a will. But it's it's also not recommended to go where you think you're going to get the will drawn free of charge, uh, which you'll get at the bank. No problem. Richard, time has run away with us. It's, it's amazing how quickly an hour goes. Thank you for coming in. And uh, just to let the listeners know is that um, this relationship between yourself and myself came about because of this radio station. So thank you for your patronage to the radio station and for listening to Chai FM and for being part of our broad listenership. So it's really appreciated. And it's really wonderful that you've come back to give back to the other listeners so we can add value to everybody, especially in this time of the year where this stuff is so important. But, uh, Craig, thank you for pushing the buttons. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, you know, it's coming towards the end of the year. We're really going to try to pack it in. But uh, for those of you who are going away, for those of you who are concerned you haven't got your stuff in order, please listen to the shows so that we can really advise you as to how to get things neat and tidy so that you can have peace of mind. Richard, thank you for coming in. And everything of the best. Avi, just to end off, if sure. I may, thank you once again very much for having invited me, or I shouldn't say invited me, I should rather say for having accepted my suggestion that you have me. And Craig, thank you too very much for what you've done. And Avi mentioned Chai FM. I personally only listen to Chai FM, and if I'm allowed to tell you all my favorite program, it's Chai Kids. And thank you very much. And, and Richard, you're not, and you're not exactly a kid yourself. So, <laughs> so that's wonderful that you're able to enjoy a program like that. I do enjoy it. Wonderful. Craig, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. We'll speak to you next week.